Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 554, for Sunday, May 24th, 2015. Uh, Greetings, folks, and welcome mac observers mac geek gab the show where you send in your questions your tips your cool stuff found we share everything we answer your questions and if we don't answer them we try to get an answer for you from this great community that we have here this show today is sponsored in part by squarespace at squarespace.com slash mgg coupon code mgg gets you 10 percent off there of your first order we will talk more about that during the show and also by the excellent i amazing and uh, iMazing is a piece of software that lets you manage all kinds of extra things with your iOS devices. We'll talk about that. MGG gets you 20% off there. The goal, of course, of this show is to learn multiple new things each and every time we get together. And that's what we're going to try and do today here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How goes it today, John F. Braun? I'm doing good, Dave, but, uh, oh man, I, I, I had a, a I, I almost panicked yesterday. Things were getting hot, man. You ever, you ever see the, uh, temperature warning on your, uh, iPhone? Oh yeah. You got yeah. The, you no. got the, what were you doing with it? Uh, I was using, uh, I was using a GPS app and, okay. uh, it was mounted in the car and it was above a, uh, dark surface. Yeah. Um, and it was in a case and I think that's what did it. First time I've ever seen it do that. Um, and actually there is a, uh, support article on that. I'll, I'll post here, uh, can explain to you why this happens and what you can do to prevent it. In my case, what I did is I, uh, when I got to a stoplight, uh, took the phone out of its leather case, which is like a nice little jacket, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause a lot of devices, uh, iPhones and, uh, Macs, uh, dissipate heat through their, uh, cases. You know, sure. Uh, um, so I did that, and then I also disconnected it from charging because it didn't really uh, need to be charged at that point, and then eventually cooled down and okay. uh, came back. But it was kind of panic-inducing seeing this big red exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting. Things happen. Yeah, yeah. Cool. But every, everything's cool now. Everybody's cool. Well, that's good, like, man. Like, like Fonzie. Uh, yeah, Fonzie was cool. He still is cool. There's not, there's not much Fonzie could do, including jumping a shark that would make him less cool. I think, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, (laughs) Hey, uh, let's go, uh, let's get right into this. Mark writes, he says, I just cannot figure out IMAP. I'm using Apple mail on both my home Mac and my work Mac. I have both set up as IMAP accounts. I'm not using an iCloud account. It's with a different service provider. So it's just straight IMAP. Both seem to work fine, except the Mac at home cannot see any mail I have sent from the Mac at work. This is happening on all of my email accounts I have going through Mac mail. And then he shows uh, a, a screenshot. Actually, he showed, showed us several screenshots of his configuration and his mail server and all of that good stuff, which is great. But then, uh, and this is a helpful thing to look at, if you go to the... Um, the mailbox, the inbox, or really anything, any of the mailboxes for your account, and you right click on it. I think you can do this elsewhere. Can you do get mailbox info? 
I don't know if you can do it anywhere else. If you right click on it, get account info is at the bottom of that list. And that will show you a lot of different things. But it one of the important things is it shows you all the mailboxes that the server advertises for that account. It also shows you the size of each of those mailboxes, which can be super handy. It might take a little while for this list to come up if you've got a lot of messages and a lot of mailboxes out there. And it'll show you your quotas and all of that. And this even works with Gmail accounts because you do, in fact, have a quota on your Gmail account. So it's, it's, it's a handy thing to see. Um, in this list, though, I immediately noticed what uh, I believe at least to be the problem. There are many mailboxes. There is one mailbox labeled inbox and nothing else similar to that, which is good. Um, however, there is a uh, sent mailbox. There is a sent messages mailbox. There is a trash mailbox. There is a deleted messages mailbox. There are two mailboxes named drafts, uh, one called junk email, one called junk and one called spam dot incoming. Uh, so you'll notice that there are multiple mailboxes with names that indicate functionality that would be similar to one another. And chances are if one computer is sending mail and that sent mail doesn't appear in the uh, sent mailbox on the others that. What's happened here is we've got different copies of Apple Mail pointing to different mailboxes for the same function. So chances are one of the computers, perhaps say his work computer, is pointing to the sent messages folder uh, as the place to deposit any out any uh, any successfully sent mail. And perhaps his computer at home is pointing to the folder simply labeled sent uh, and therefore, when you click on one or click on the other, you won't see what's happened on any other machines. But the mail, the mail is all still there. And in fact, if you dig down and, and scroll down in your mailbox list in, in Apple Mail, you'll start to see these other mailboxes kind of floating out there. And and uh, and it won't necessarily make sense unless you understand that the names that you see in sort of the blessed mailboxes in Apple Mail are not the actual names of the mailbox. They, they are homogenized. Every copy of Apple Mail will show you a message or a mailbox called sent for each of your IMAP accounts, but it may not actually be called sent. That's just what it's referred to in the interface. It might be, say, a mailbox called sent messages. So what you do is you go scroll all the way down the list on the left in, in Apple Mail and uh, and pick... Whichever one you want to be your master sent account and you highlight that. And then again, uh, you go to the mailbox menu and at the toward the bottom one up from the bottom for most of us is going to be use this mailbox as and you've got five choices there. Drafts, sent, junk, trash and archive. Uh, get these in sync on both of your machines or all of your machines and then once they're in sync, you will see uh, all the other kind of uh, orphaned mailboxes, if you will, sitting in the list all the way at the bottom on the left there in mail. Well, at this point, what you want to do is take, say, if, if you've got others that were performing a similar function, you know, depositing sent mail, take the messages from those and move them into your main sent mailbox folder and then delete that 
that uh, that orphaned folder and and really clean up the list. And that's really going to help it. It's um, it's something we all wind up going through from time to time. Uh, Apple on the back end, I think, changed the names that they used to create these mailboxes. And so sometimes things get a little wonky, especially if you're using a third party IMAP server. Yes. And there's an equivalent to this in iOS, but it is hidden and it's buried really deep in there, Dave. Very good point. Yep. And then if you go to settings, mail contacts, calendars, you'll see the various accounts here. And I'm going to use my iCloud account as an example. So then I click on iCloud. Okay. Well, now we're in another menu. Then you got to go all the way to the bottom and go to advanced mail. And then you got to go to advanced again. And then you will see the mailbox behaviors. Right. Um, and it'll show you, like Dave said, drafts, sent, deleted, and archive, and what mailbox they're synced to. Like, for example, in my case, drafts is synced to drafts. Okay, good. Sent mailbox is synced to sent messages. Oh, okay, that's a little different. As you said, there's the standard name, and then there's the name that's used on the server. And right. If, uh, and as, as we've seen, those can get out of sync. My deleted is synced to trash. Okay, again, they're different, but they're not. <laughs> right, yeah, functionally. But but it's easy to get confused. You say, well, this one's synced to deleted messages. That sounds like the right one. This one's synced to trash. That sounds like the the right one. And and there's no wrong one. You just have to use the same one. That's really the, mm-hmm. the trick. Yep. yep. All right, cool. Moving on to Andrew. Uh, this is uh, this is This is interesting here, John, what we got going on. So Andrew writes and says, I have a 2011 iMac and have been experiencing a problem when it is waking from sleep. My iMac is connected to my cable modem via Ethernet cable. I have Wi-Fi turned off. Normally, I could allow my iMac to go to sleep. And upon waking from sleep, I could immediately access the Internet. Recently, when my iMac goes to sleep, it seems to disconnect from the Internet. Upon waking the iMac, there is no connection to the net. However, after a few minutes, connection is restored. I'm unsure what has gone wrong as I have not made any changes to my iMac. I've tried having the iMac connect to the Internet via Wi-Fi instead of Ethernet, and the problem still occurs. I can connect. There's just a delay upon waking from sleep, and it's a rather large delay, as it turns out, uh, several minutes, if not more. Uh, he says, I've, number, I've performed a number of troubleshooting steps. He's rebooted his Mac. He's reset his PRAM and his SMC. He restarted his router. He created a new network location and system preferences. He assigned a static IP to his Mac, and he reinstalled Yosemite as a maintenance install on top of itself. Um, there's, there's a couple of other things that I'm going to throw out here. We, we've, we actually have a solution to this problem, but for anybody that's experiencing network oddities, uh, first of all, several of the steps that Andrew went through are fantastic. Uh, trying with Wi-Fi will really help uh, diagnose if you've got, say, a cable issue um, with Ethernet. You can have, uh, in fact, I had this on on one of my Macs, the, the iMac where the motherboard eventually got replaced, where something happened to the Ethernet port over the years and it wound up um, that the, the Ethernet port would stopped negotiating at 
a gigabit speeds and would only negotiate it 100 megabit speeds. And it, it was not the cable. It was not the port on the switch on the other side. It was, in fact, the port on the computer. And and there would be some delay because it would try to negotiate a gig Ethernet and then it would eventually drop down and, and get a successful connection. So uh, but that's not the case here, because for Andrew, that's happening on Wi-Fi. Right. The other thing is it could have been his router, uh, perhaps delaying in sending out uh, uh, an IP address. But again, Andrew, you took a great step. You diagnosed it by assigning a static IP address to your Mac. So again, bypassing that particular and isolating. I mean, this is a, a great example of an excellent troubleshooting process, right? Isolate one thing, test against it, compare the results, move on. And that's really the only way to get to the answer here. So we went, uh, we went through a few things and Andrew wrote back and he says, I think I have fixed my problem. Uh, he says, but I don't really understand what I've done. He said, uh, what I did was I moved the system configuration folder uh, to my desktop and rebooted my Mac and it then recreated the system configuration folder. And he found an article at OS 10 daily that, that walked him through this process. It's in the main uh, library folder, not home library, but, but the library folder at the root of your drive inside preferences. And then there's a folder called system configuration. And there are, um, several files in there that matter. He, I believe he deleted the whole folder, but there's a uh, network identification P list, a network interfaces P list, uh, several others in there. And, and this is where your uh, system wide part of where your system wide network settings are stored. And it seems like at least one of those P lists must've gotten corrupted because uh, when he deleted this folder and rebooted the system, uh, rebuilt the folder, and his problem has gone away, which makes sense. But uh, very interesting and, and very interesting to know that 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 um, that system configuration folder is the magic answer, John. Yeah, but look at all that stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I came across this, too, when I was having Wi-Fi issues. As it turned out, it was just uh, Yosemite. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Didn't get it quite right. But yeah, that's right, a, right. a good unexpected. Uh, yeah, hidden place where all of this stuff is stored. See, I'm with you. One of those must have gotten corrupted. Yeah. Yeah. It's great troubleshooting from, from Andrew. Um, but uh, yeah, it's good stuff, man. It's good. All right. Uh, I want to, you have a little story to tell John. And, and first I want to talk a little bit about our first sponsor, which is Squarespace. Uh, Squarespace.com slash MGG is where you start. And man, this is where you go to build a professionally designed website. Even if you have no idea what you would even start to do to design a professionally designed website, right? Let alone have the skill to, to code it and, and create the, the visuals and all of that stuff. This is what Squarespace is fantastic at. You go there, you go to squarespace.com slash MGG. That way they know uh, we sent you and you just start building your website. Uh, the tools are all right there in your browser. They're really intuitive. You, you already know how to use them. If you want to change a font size, you just do that. You click on the font and there's there comes the little widget up. If you want to replace an image, you literally just drag the replacement in from your desktop. It's, it's that simple. You don't really have to think about this. You just sort of do it. Um, and then, you know, you, you, you pick 
You pick a template, you edit the template, you start putting your content in, and then your site's up. And that's the thing is Squarespace has, you know, state-of-the-art tech behind all their servers. So not only are they the place where you design and build your website, they're the place where you host it. And it all just happens automatically. And there's, I mean, there's, their hosting is, is awesome. I've, you know, I've never had a problem with, with anything there. It's just reliable and it just works. You know, it's one of those things you just don't think about. And that's how hosting is supposed to be. Uh, it's not supposed to be something you spend a lot of brain power thinking about. And certainly Squarespace has uh, succeeded in that department. There are millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world using uh, Squarespace out there. And it starts at just eight bucks a month. And if you sign up for a year, you get a free domain if you register uh, or when you register. Uh, here's the cool part, though. You can save even more. That eight bucks a month, that's the rate for everybody else. But for you, it's 10% off of that, right? So sign up for a year. Now you're really saving money. Use the coupon code MGG and you get 10% off. But it gets even better than that. You get a two-week free trial to build your site. So just go squarespace.com slash MGG. And uh, then once you sign up, use that coupon code MGG. You get 10% off your purchase there. So again, you sign up for a year, uh, you're paying less than eight bucks a month. Plus you get a free domain. That's how it works. Squarespace.com slash MGG coupon code MGG Squarespace build it beautiful. All right, John, what do you got for me? Beautiful. It is beautiful. <clears throat> what I got for you is a story about the switch that I just got and some cool things that I was able to do. So one, the software for it, I thought was windows only, but I was wrong. Um, now I did notice if you recall that when I ran it under windows, Java was running as well. And when I looked in the package, I, I thought that was kind of weird. And I looked and I saw DLLs and jar files and I thought, Oh, well, you know, it's kind of a mix uh, and it's windows only as it turns out, it's not. And, um, one of my followers actually pointed me to a nice article over at shredzone.de, which is over in Germany. And it's called Setting Up the TP-Link TLSG-108E with Linux. Well, you know, uh, OS X isn't Linux, but it's close. It's, it's a Unix variant. And there were two steps here. And uh, I finally figured out the, uh, the, the harder step. So step one is that once you install it, so you have to run the Windows installer, and then it, it puts the CXE file. You run the CXE file, and I was running it fine under Parallels. But if you take it and you copy it over to the Mac side, and you rename it from .exe to .jar, yeah. it is, in fact, a Java program, and it will run on the Mac. And I was like, oh, cool. So, yeah, it came up. Huh. You know, saw the user interface, and I'm like, wow, that's really neat. But then... I said, well, find the switch for me, will you? And here's the bad news. Um, I, you know, hit refresh, say, come on, find that switch. Because what it does is it sends out, and this is the article gets into this and it gets a little bit geeky, but what it does is it sends out a UDP packet on port 29808, I think it is, <clears throat> saying, hey, anybody out there, uh, you know, listening? If you are, please respond to me. Now, the way that UDP broadcasts work on Windows is different in that 
And, and then what happens is, you know, I would see this with a protocol analyzer is the switch would respond. It would say and it would send a reply to the UDP broadcast address, which I think is, you know, two, five, five, two, five, five, two, five, five, two, five, five saying, yep, I'm here. But because of the way uh, the TCP IP works on OS 10, the program didn't see the packet, but there is a way to redirect it. And this is by issuing a command. And one of the other commenters in the article um, did this as well. He said, oh, well, um, and the guy gives rules for different firewalls. But the thing is right now, currently Yosemite uses a firewall called PF. I think it stands for packet filter. Yep. And some guy crafted a rule um, which basically would take a packet that was destined for 255.255.255.255 and redirect it to the IP address of the computer you're running the software on. Aha. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's basically what I ended up doing. Is uh, So I took this one packet that he, uh, you know, this rule that he stated, and I punched it in, but it didn't work. So I was missing one key here. Just because you define the firewall rule doesn't mean you're actually running the firewall. Yeah, you got to turn the firewall on. <laughs> right. And by, by default, it is not on That's under right. uh, Yosemite. Now, you could either use something like Ice Floor. Ice Floor is a, is a tool, but I, I wasn't able to get the rule. Uh, I wasn't able to get Ice Floor to digest the rule. Um, it does help turn on the, uh, the interface. Uh, it does help uh, turn on the firewall, but I sure. couldn't get it to parse that rule. So I got to the command line and you can go to the command line and do sudo pfctl space dash e and that enables the firewall. Okay. And I can now run that software, uh, the Java software so, on the Mac. So you, okay, so there was a two-step process to making this work. The first step was sorting out and then making a minor change, but first sorting out that the... Uh, Windows executable was in fact not a Windows executable at all, but was just a a jar file. And typically a jar file uh, is a package. It's kind of like the OS 10 packages, right? It's a, it's a zipped up uh, package zip with the compression archive, right? Jar files are all zip files. If I'm, if I remember correctly, right. That, that have all the data that is needed to run uh, a Java app. Right. Right. Okay. So that, that's step one. Is, is just noting that and changing the .exe extension to .jar. And then you could run it, but it wouldn't work because you needed this firewall rule to point back at the right place. Is that is that correct? The firewall rule took the response from the switch and redirected it to the Java software. Got it. Perfect. Because okay. of the different way that it works. All Got right. it. Very so that's cool, cool thing one. Yeah. Cool thing, too, is that I had a transporter uh, incident just the other day in which it totally disappeared from my network. So we we've been through this, folks, and and listeners uh, feel the pain, not, perhaps not quite as much as as, say, those of us that experience it live uh, like me and, and everybody in the chat room at MacGeekGab.com slash stream. But this is when John's network goes offline and uh, and 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 then, John, you reboot your Mac a couple of times and even though that doesn't need to happen. And then finally uh, we realize it's the transporter and, and you reset it and then everything is all good. But, um, but this time something different happened. Well, this time what happened is that it disappeared in that the transporter software on both of my computers said, um, sorry, it's offline. Can't find it. Don't know what's up. And I'm like, well, that's annoying. Yeah. So I fired up the switch software. And now this switch being a smarty pants switch, uh, or being smarter than the average switch, or at least the one I used to have, 
shows you um, what is happening on each port. So I looked what was happening on that port and it was transmitting something, but I, I couldn't find it because I tried, you know, I looked at the IP address that it was assigned and then, you know, I fired up uh, one of our favorite programs, Dave Dubuki and said, Hey, yeah, um, scan my network and show me what devices are out there. And it showed me all the devices and the one at that IP was not there. So the good news is that I'm sure your suspicion was correct in that for some reason that other switch that I had was traumatized by whatever this device was now sending out. Yep. Whereas this time it didn't take down my network. It just isolated that device and I had to cycle power and then it came back. So item two and then the final item, Dave, just a cool well, so new thing you can do. So first of all, we thought it might take months to figure out if this new switch was actually going to help protect you better against these, you know, errant devices. And it turns out the answer is no, it wasn't going to take months. It just took a matter of a couple of weeks. And the answer is yes, which is awesome because it means that we won't have this problem uh, every three months while we're recording here. Right. So I think what I have to do, because uh, you and I confirmed that I have the latest firmware on this device. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it could be a memory leak. I don't know. I'm going to do a, you know, a full reset on it and see if that yeah. fixes the problem. Yeah. And then the final cool thing I was able to do, and Dave, you got to get one of these things. So um, there's some feature that this supports and it's given different names here, but I was able to combine the two. So there's something called trunking or port aggregation. What okay. is this, you ask? And I'll tell you what it is. And one of my devices lets me do this. It's the Synology. The Synology, Dave, has two Ethernet ports on it. Or, well, Bef- your, yours does. Some of them Correct. only have and one. I think, Some have and I think, four. Right. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh-huh. So for devices that have multiple Ethernet ports, it is possible if your switch supports it to do something that's known as link aggregation. It's also called something else, Dave. Because when I looked at the specs for this switch, it said, oh, by the way, I support all these standards. And one of them that I support is called IEEE 802.3AB, which unless you... B. Okay. Well, that is the IEEE specification for uh, port aggregation. I thought it was... And this is just because I'm a geek. I thought it was 802.3AD, Delta, as in... Uh, it's not, not a B um, alpha Bravo. I think, it, I think it's alpha Delta. I, I could be wrong though. S- certain. All right. I mean, I realize we're getting it into minutia here um, and, and we'll get past it. Trust us folks. We will. Uh, we will rebuild. Was, no, I'm pretty sure that was it. Or maybe it was another standard that okay. it uh, listed here. Yeah. Maybe it was 802.3, No, I'm almost certain that was one of them. All right. Maybe it wasn't. But anyways, um, they call it in their software trunking. And what you can do is you can say, okay, take these two ports on the switch and basically lump them together and make them look as one. Now, the device, such as the Synology, has to support this as well. And I was able to do that. I was basically able to... Um, using the Synology software, say, okay, take these two um, Ethernet ports and bond them together that are plugged into the switch and try to do this link aggregation thing. And it basically takes a moment. It you know has a little conversation with the switch saying, hey, do you support this? And it's like, yeah, I do. So basically now I have a 
two gigabit connection and it shows it now well, once you successfully uh, configure it it shows oh yeah you got a two gigabit connection um to your switch <laughs> that's cool that made me happy as well now let me look here network yep. interface so it says bond one connected right now if i say edit here's the standard in the no i'm sorry 802.3 ad okay so it is alpha delta yeah okay yep Okay, so so this listing that they give is incorrect. Oh, yeah, because AB, I'm looking at the uh, Brian Monroe in the chat room, uh, and I started looking up the the Wikipedia entry on 802.3, and A Alpha Bravo is uh, gigabit Ethernet over twisted pair. So that's, I mean, that's just a different thing. So yeah, A Alpha Delta is uh, link aggregation, but that has been replaced. It's saying with. 802.1 AX alpha x-ray. Uh, and then that's what link aggregation is today. It's 802.1 AX. It was previously 802.3 AD. I, I don't know that any of this matters. I, actually, it, it totally matters. Of course, if you're building these things, if you're using them, you just use them and then it, and then it's great. Yeah. So I have not done this link aggregation thing and here's why um, ports on my switches are, uh, typically in short supply, not that I'm using them constantly, but I always kind of, you know, want extra ports to plug a, you know, a, a, a test device in or something. And since I'm not going, I, since I have no single computers that can support faster than gigabit ethernet, I don't have any, you know, 10 gigabit ethernet machines. Uh, that part's not going to matter. And the chance that I would need multiple computers sending or receiving at faster or at, even at gigabit speeds from my uh, NAS unit, my Synology or really any of them is uh, simultaneously is pretty slim. I'm sure it, it could happen. Right. But you know, in order to take advantage of, in your case, two gigabit ethernet, you'd need two different computers connected to the same switch so that it's all happening, happening efficiently, both pulling gig E data, you know, simultaneously. And that's assuming the switch can keep up with it or that, sorry, not the switch. That's assuming that the NAS can actually pump data out that fast. If the drives are able to be read that fast and right. All that stuff. Right. Which, it, which is, I possible. just want Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just want to do it just because I could. And actually now that I yeah. look, now that I look at the spec, they, they do further down in the spec, say L2 features link aggregation. So that's where they say that the switch is, Got it. Capable of it. And the reason I mentioned Synology is they just came out with a major update of their software and they now support two different flavors of link aggregation before they only supported one. Now they support two and I'm using the older one, which is called uh, balanced XOR. And then okay. the, the new one that they support in their new software is called IEEE 802.3 AD dynamic link aggregation, which I guess is better or easier maybe to, to set up. Yeah, I got to check it out. In fact, I, I'm not, quite ready to to talk about it yet because i literally just finished setting it up yesterday but i just uh got one of the new uh, 2015 based synologies to test uh it's i've got the the 1815 plus which is fun because it's got eight bays but um really the important thing is that it's got a quad core 2.4 gigahertz processor in there and that's really the thing that I'm, I'm eager to try out. But the good news is you don't need to buy an eight bay unit if you don't need one to get that processor. You can get I believe you can get that processor in the DS 415 plus. So that's a four bay unit, half the price. Um, 
and uh, and and I'm really excited about it for things like Plex and Video Station in, in terms of transcoding video. And I want to compare that against a couple of other things, and and then I'll and then I'll be ready to to talk about it. But uh, in a in a general sense, uh, you know the the fact that these NAS vendors are adding really powerful CPUs to these devices. It used to be that the CPUs were sort of intentionally limited and, and for the lower end NAS units, they, they are just because they're limited by cost, but, um, but being able to have a, you know, a quad core Intel 2.4 gigahertz CPU in, in your NAS really opens up a lot of possibilities. This one, in fact, uh, one of the new things in the, in the, the new Synology firmware, John is something called Docker, which is a, a virtualized container uh, environment so you can actually run like windows and, and other apps right on your Synology and, and connect to them via a web browser. So I'm, I'm eager to try all this out. Like I said, I just finished getting everything kind of migrated into it and, uh, and set up and it's up and running and, and sort of happy now. But, uh, but I want to, I'm, I'm eager to check it out. In fact, this, this sort of leads to a, a question that Steve had, John, he, uh, he wrote, you often talk about your Synology NAS, as it turns out we do. He says, I have a Drobo 5N, but I'm beginning to be disappointed by the Drobo app status, or should I say status quo? They're not adding a whole lot of new apps to it. He says, I looked at their webpage, but finding, I looked at Synology's webpage, but finding what is equivalent to a Drobo 5N or the closest is not really easy. Their list of devices is huge. And you're absolutely right. I'm trying to navigate the Synology, if you hear us say, oh, yeah, we love our disk stations, which we say because it's true. Uh, but it, you go and try to navigate and figure out what to buy. You'll figure it out because you're smart and you know what you need, uh, hopefully. But it's a it's it's a it's a tedious process. So uh, going with the uh, if you really want just to get your feet wet. The either the the Beyond Cloud unit, which is the DS two fourteen SE, I believe, is is probably the way to go because you can do that for under two hundred bucks, and it's a great, uh, really really great uh, device. But um, if you're going, if you want to go with a four or five bay unit, that's not gonna that's that's not what you're after, right? So uh, you definitely want to. Uh, you know, you want to look at something a little beefier um, in in that regard. And so I would uh, for a five bay unit, it, it's kind of tough uh, because the 1515 plus does not have the I don't think it has the same 2.4 gigahertz CPU. I'm, I'm pulling it all up now so that I have everything in front of me, John. Um, let's see. Yeah, the 1515 Plus, oh, the 1515 Plus does have the quad-core 2.4 gigahertz CPU. You definitely want to get something in the plus range from Synology because that indicates the faster CPU, um, among some other things. Um, the 415 Plus is also has this quad-core uh, CPU. It's got uh, the 4 in the name. It indicates the number of bays. So we're talking about a 5-bay um, a unit versus a 4-bay unit. And... Uh, the the thing is the fifteen fifteen plus is seven hundred and seventy bucks empty, the four fifteen plus is five hundred and eighty bucks empty, so there's a pretty significant savings. However, the one thing is that according to Synology, the four fifteen plus 
is limited to t- the two gigs of RAM that comes with it. And you, according to them, cannot expand that RAM. The 1515 plus the RAM can be expanded. You can add another four gigs again, according to Synology and get that thing up to six. This will make a difference if you're running all sorts of things like, you know, uh, Plex and, and crash plan and video station and all that stuff. These things take up RAM because it's just like another computer and you need the more RAM to, you know, to, to fit all of these programs in memory at once. Now, um, so that alone in my mind would make it worth the extra 200 bucks, uh, because the RAM is cheap. RAM's going to cost you, you know, I just added four gigs of RAM to this, um, 1815 to get it up from two to, to six. And it was like 30 bucks. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a, a, a big sum of money, but the ability to do it is what you want. Now, unofficially many 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 people have been taking the uh ram unit that's in their 415 plus and replacing it with a you know replacing the two gig unit that comes with it and replacing it with an eight gig unit giving it eight gigs of ram the problem is and and probably why synology doesn't support this is that the path in and out uh of that unit is not all that straightforward you've got to take the case apart in a pretty significant way to just access the, where the Ram uh, SODIM is. It's not that hard. I've, I've done it on older, but similar units. So it's totally doable. It's just not, you know, it's not two screws and you're right there. It's, it's a, it's a, you know, slightly more involved affair. It's probably a a 20 to 30 minute affair. It's not horrible, but, uh, but that's probably why Synology doesn't support it. And also then you need to know that if you're, you know, if you do this, well, you may be voiding your, your warranty, you'd have to check with Synology on that. But my guess is you're, you're probably, you know, at least dancing in that territory. But those are the two that I would, I would compare to. And, and like I said, I just got the eight bay unit, which is the, um, 1815 plus. So similar to these in every respect, except it just has, um, it's got, uh, eight bays. And I, I have four ethernet ports on this. I'm trying to f- look here, John, and see, um, how many, ethernet ports these units have if they can do your your link aggregation so the 1515 has four the 415 has two so either one can do can do link aggregation so yeah you're good to go hopefully that answers your question steve it's um yeah it's it's tough negotiating what i'm gonna do is i'll put they've got a great kind of comparison thing so i will i will compare these and and i'll I'll even put in the comparison url the non-plus unit so you can see the difference in the cpu and it you know, it make, makes a difference. Obviously, it makes a difference in the cost as well. But, um, but you know, that's it. And I'll throw the uh, the two fourteen SE in there as well because that's a um, that's the that's. I mean, it's it it's only an eight hundred megahertz CPU, but for less than a hundred, less than two hundred bucks, you can get yourself started with a, a you know a really really nice unit. So. And the cool part is you can take the drives from any uh, Synology and move it up to a Synology that holds that number of drives or, or more. So like, you know, I was able to take the drives in my uh, 1513 and move them right into the eight, 1815 and all my data, all my settings, everything preserved. I mean, you got to follow the right path and, and all of that, of course. But um, but so you could start, you know, if, if you just want to get your feet wet with it, you start with the Beyond Cloud unit, which is essentially a DS two fourteen SE with all of your um, settings kind of pre configured, and and then you can you kind of move up from there. 
move your drives with you. So that's my thought process, Mr. Braun. And you've just got a two bay Synology and, and you love it. Yeah. yeah. Two's, two's enough for me. I have yeah. the uh, DS713 Plus. Okay. What's yeah. nice about this model is that it does have, uh, I believe it's an eSATA port on it. And you can get an expansion bay, which I believe has four or five yeah. additional bays. So if you do at some point, because yeah, when they set me up with it, it's like, well, you know, my needs are modest. And they're like, well, you know, we got something that, you know, can, you know, let you grow if, if, you, if you decide you need to. At this point, I don't. Yep. Um, but that's a nice option too. Several of their models will let you, uh, tack on an expansion bay yep. if you uh, outgrow it. Yep. Yeah. And then you're not buying another CPU or anything. You're, it's just, you know, a bay with, that you can put more drives in easy. Cool. All right, John, you had a couple, um, of people that were talking about, uh, sleep issues and it seems like that's become a theme. So we're going to talk about that in a moment, but first, I want to talk about our second sponsor here, which is iMazing. Uh, iMazing is a fantastic piece of software that allows you to manage the content on your iOS devices in a way that iTunes just simply doesn't. Uh, if you want to, you know, it really started as a as a replacement for or an, an enhancement, really, uh, for iTunes in terms of managing songs, right? You, you know, it, you needed a way to get songs on your iPod or I, iPhone that was not, you know, stuck in this Apple centric way of, of managing everything in iTunes. And, it, and of course, iTunes doesn't let you take music off of your iOS devices and, and iMazing will. So you've got all of that. And then it's got this awesome, but they've expanded it significantly from there. I mean, this product's, um, pretty mature it's been around for a number of years started out as discade now it's called iMazing, and it truly is amazing it the things it allows you to do you can manage your backups with this and you can dig into your backups in fact uh you may have read that ios 8.3 locked out a lot of uh software like this it used to be that you could go directly into an app's data folder on your live device and manipulate data there and, it, and frankly, it was really handy. I've talked about some of the great things that I've been able to do with that. Well, unfortunately, with iOS 8.3, Apple shut that down. It was a security hole. I mean, we weren't using it for that reason. We were using it to manage our own devices. But foreseeably, it could be used to, uh, you know, breach some device. So they uh, they closed that down. Well, iMazing can still help you get at that data. What you need to do is back up your device first, and then iMazing can go in to those backups, and then you can pull individual bits of data out. If you want to, you can actually go and change that data, put it back on there, and then restore that backup to your device. And now you've manipulated the data for just one app without having to get rid of everything else. It's pretty well done. It's not pretty well done. It's amazingly well done. I, I, this is a piece of software that I could not live without. You know, if you need to pull, uh, photos off in a you know in a in a in a way that is different from just barfing them with you know uh, the photos app or with iTunes again this is what you do you want granular control over what you're doing uh iMazing is the way to go um i've used it to transfer 
you know, I've done voice recordings where the, you know, the, the end result of the recording is, you know, like 20 or 30 minutes long because I've done an interview with someone. Try getting that out of your iPhone, uh, especially if you are traveling and the computer you have with you is, is not the one is not the copy of iTunes. You normally sync that phone with good luck. Well, with iMazing, you don't need luck. You just need iMazing. And it's going to let you pull this data off and you need to manipulate the, uh, the audio or whatever you need to do and just get it right on your Mac and you're good to go. It's iPhone management made easy. You've got to check this out. So go iMazing.com. That's the place you start. You can download it, start playing around when you're ready to buy coupon code MGG gets you 20% off. Yep. 20% off of this fantastic piece of software. You really got to check it out. And uh, it's just super simple. And 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 does so much. You just got to play with it. Have fun with it because that's that's what this software is. It's fun because you get to do what you want to do. And the you, the interface is gorgeous. And it you know, it's not just uh it's not just for the Mac. It is for the Mac, but uh it's also for Windows. So you want some control over your uh your iPhone while you're say at work or even at home on your Windows machine? Boom. Here you go. Amazing. Can't live without it. Check it out. Imazing.com. Let them know we sent you. Because uh, they're good folks over there. Really good folks. Check them out. iMazing.com. Thanks to iMazing for the sponsorship of this episode and their ongoing sponsorship as well. All right, John. Take us where we're going to go. Sleep. Put us to sleep. No. <laughs> well, Dave. Yeah. The thing is, it's important to get enough sleep, whether you be a human, in which case it's almost necessary, or a computer. And when you put your computer to sleep, which I, if I'm not using it, that's what I typically do, Dave. Um, on my Mac Mini, I'll go to the Apple menu and say sleep. And uh, my MacBook Pro, I'll close the lid. And then you close the lid, and uh, at some point you should see the LED pulsing, kind of like a heartbeat. Kind of creepy. I think they were one of the first computer makers to actually do that, to, does to your give MacBook you kind of a Pro, visual. Does it still have a, a pulsing? Uh, uh, 2012, yeah. Yeah, the 2012. Well, both. Okay. Yeah, both. Both the mini and um, and the MacBook Pro, when they're in sleep mode, will pulse. You know, make it brighter and and dimmer. I don't. Will well, pulse the LED when they're sleeping. Yes, certainly. My well, my iMac doesn't have an LED to pulse, and my 11 inch MacBook Air does not have an LED to pulse. I'm, I wonder if the if the current crop of of MacBooks and MacBook Pros pulse anything. I, I wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me if they've done away with that. So now the good news is that for the machines that have it, that's a visual indication that the machine is in sleep mode, which, uh, you know, is a low power mode. It's funny because actually I noticed this and I noticed this in the past too, Dave, when the Mac mini goes to sleep, it knocks down the ethernet port to hundred gigabits or a hundred megabits. The light actually changes on my switch. I'm not sure why they do that. Oh, but that makes sense. I don't know if it, uh, it's kind of weird. And then once you wake it up, it switches it back. And I've confirmed this looking at the switch settings. It's like, yep, it's in a hundred mode. I'm like, mm, all right, whatever. I mean, it's sleeping, so it shouldn't matter. Yeah. But here's the thing. So we have a couple of people writing in here having problems with their sleep, whether it's not sleeping or, or doing strange things. So Bruce writes in the first one here. And Bruce says, I keep getting this warning when I wake my laptop. I can't figure what is causing it. I have checked all my settings to no avail. Any ideas? And what does he see? Well, I pasted it in our Evernote thing, Dave. I got to say, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm liking this Evernote thing. It's, a, it's pretty flexible. It lets us 
yeah, I pasted a graphic that somehow didn't make it into the, the notes here. And I just pasted it in, in our Evernote and you can see it and I can see it, Dave. And he gets a warning or a dialogue saying this computer has been scheduled to go to sleep automatically. If you do nothing, the computer will go to sleep automatically in seven minutes and 58 seconds. Well, and then that, that counts down. <laughs> the screenshot happens so, to say 758, but, you know, it counts down. Right. So um, that's not normal. At least I've never seen it happen on either of my machines. As soon as you wake it up, it says, oh, I've been told to go to sleep again. And he said he checked all his settings. So I'm going to give kind of a rundown of where you can look, Dave. Some are expected and some are unexpected. So the first place you may want to look is where can you set this? Well, if you go to System Preferences, Energy Saver, that screen right off the bat will have a couple of sliders. One is Computer Sleep. uh, The other is Display Sleep. And you can set them, either one, ranging from one minute to never. (laughs) Uh, for both power adapter and when you're on battery. So it could be possible that it's there, but I'm sure he looked there and that that's, um, you know, that's a pretty obvious one. Here's one that's not so obvious, Dave, is if you look in that dialogue, you're going to see a schedule dot, dot, dot button. Wow. What could that be? Well, if you click on that, check this out. And if you didn't know about this and a lot of people don't, this is actually kind of neat. You can schedule your machine to both start up or wake um, on a schedule and, you know, it'll list, you know, every day, weekdays, weekends. uh, So you'll get a day and a time. So you could certainly schedule a startup or wake, but you can also schedule a sleep. And it could be that you inadvertently or someone, you know, is playing a trick on you and told your computer (laughs) to, uh, to sleep. Now, you could also, yeah, oh, I'm sorry, you can also schedule not only sleep, but restart and shut down. Oh, dude, you could have so much fun goofing with people doing this. <laughs> so um, that was the first one. Uh, now, I, I haven't heard back yet, but, uh, but that's the first places to look and the most obvious. <sighs> There's another place that you could look, Dave, and uh, don't be afraid, but this is the terminal. Yep. Now, if you go to the terminal... There is a setting uh, or or there is a command that you can type where you can see uh, some of the settings that we just talked about. They're realized in this command. And I believe what you say is PM set space dash G. That's it. And that's going to be power management settings. And then dash G says, you know, spill it. Tell me what's what's set up here. But this one to be to be clear, PM set won't show you what's scheduled it will only show you active Correct. settings okay well i'm not sure i, I don't have anything scheduled uh, i do no you're it, right it won't show you schedules yeah okay but it does show you so this is kind of a, a level check to make sure that what you see in the in the uh energy saver uh system setting uh is really what the computer is set to and it'll show you the hibernate mode, which there, there are various codes for that. You're going to want to do, a, I think, a man space PM set to see what some of these things mean. So, for example, it says hibernate mode three. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, the manual page tells you. Uh, it shows this is actually, go, keep going. I, I've got an aside for this, but, but, but finish okay. up. Yeah. But it'll show you um, display sleep, dissleep. So it'll help you confirm some of the settings that you've seen in the other place. Um, and, and some additional ones, sleep on power button, sleep prevented by. So, so it, it tells you 
uh, I would say this is probably the best place to look for most of the information that has to do with when your computer thinks it should go to sleep. So, uh, and he sent us that, he sent that list and nothing in there looked out of the ordinary. Uh, but please Dave, uh, what, what you got? Well, you mentioned hibernate mode and it is, it's a, it's a weird, uh, setting because only because the, the input to it is kind of arcane, but there are some cool things that you can do here. Now there are, um, there are two defaults. Really there's three settings that you would use zero three, as you mentioned, and then one that can only be set via the command line. And that's 25. So hibernate mode zero is the default on desktop computers. What will happen is, but actually, you know what? I'm going to rewind a little bit. Hibernate mode three. That's what you mentioned. This is probably the easiest way to understand this. This is what's default on portable machines. And what happens when you set hibernate mode three is that the system before going to sleep, it stores a copy of everything in Ram to the disk and you know either the the spinning disk or the ssd right and uh and will power memory during sleep so that when you wake the computer it's just got everything uh right there and you're you're good to go um the system will wake from memory because it's all right there and the memory has been trickle powered during sleep Unless some sort of power loss, either you run out of power or, or something else happens, uh, forces it to restore not from RAM, in which case it goes to the disk image. So that's hibernate mode three. It, it, it on the way to sleep, it takes a copy of your RAM, stores it to disk for safekeeping and then keeps the memory powered so that you can have a quick wake up. Hibernate mode zero is the default on desktop machines. It does not back up RAM to persistent storage. Um, the system will only wake from the contents of memory, but because it's a desktop machine, it's uh, it's trivial to trickle power the, the, the RAM while you're sleeping again, as long as you have power. Um, and if you have a power loss, of course there, there is no um, waking from that. You just have to restart from that. That is plain old sleep. And that's in fact what Apple calls it in the man page. Now hibernate mode 25 is sort of a hybrid. The system stores a copy of memory to uh, storage when you put it to sleep and then removes power to memory. So it shuts the computer off. The system in this case will always restore from a disk image. Um, and that is true hibernation. The system takes longer to get to sleep. It takes longer to wake up, but you do have better battery life. Um, especially if your machine is asleep for long periods of time, because you're not trickle powering the RAM. So zero, three or 25. I actually set all my laptops at zero. I don't a, I don't want it storing this big hibernation image that you know is the size of however much ram you have so four gigs eight gigs whatever that is it's going to eat that up on your drive and then number two this isn't so much an issue today uh, but certainly is a holdover from days with spindle hard drives it would take a long time to save that ram image out to disk on a you know on a slower hard drive so I, I, there would be this lag between when I would close my Mac and when it would start sleeping. And John, in your case, you know, you see the pulsing light and, but that, again, the pulsing light is gone on, on newer Macs, but, but it was obvious then that it would take a long time and then finally go. So I've, I've always just used hibernate mode zero on all my computers, desktops and laptops alike. And you can do that PM set. Uh, 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 let's see. Oh, you know, I'll put an article in so we don't have to remember command. I'll put an article in that'll, that'll show you how to do it. 
because there's a couple of different ways from the command line. It's not hard. One one line and you're good to go. Okay. So um, that's another place to check to make sure everything is, is uh, consistent between that and what you see in the, in the system preferences. Another thing occurred to me, Dave, um, when you're having power issues and Apple themselves suggest to do this, if all else is lost, um, is to reset your SMC. And they specifically say, here's one of the cases where you may want to reset your SMC is if the computer sleeps or shuts down unexpectedly. And they list that in the article. And I would say this perhaps qualifies <laughs> in that he's, he's not expecting it to say it wants to go to sleep. So it could be an SMC reset. We'll, we'll address this, right? And then a final thing, Dave, I did not know this, but now I do. You could have apps sneaking around behind your back, telling your computer to sleep or wake up. Sure. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Carbon copy cloner does it. And I'll tell you, uh, and I'll tell you where you can look. So if you go into about this Mac, System report, which is the system information uh, application. Then you go to the hardware category and then you click on power. Well, in my case, Dave, you know, I actually, and I never noticed this, but I just stumbled across it the other day. I see listed here, in addition to all the, you know, so actually a lot of these look like the same settings you see in PM set space dash G. Uh, actually, it's almost exactly the same, except it explains them a little bit better. It also says UPS installed. No, which because I don't have one. But then it says power events. Next scheduled event type wake scheduled by com.bombic.ccc.scheduledtask.blah. And it tells me it's going to do that at two in the morning, which is exactly what I told Carbon Copy Cloner to do. So you may have an application that for whatever reason thinks it should be scheduling a sleep event for you. So look in that section and see if anybody is doing that for you. Finally, Dave, one last tidbit. And I, I just researched this quickly. Uh, it didn't occur to me at the time. But uh, the final thing, Dave, is that there are some preference files that may have to do with this. I found this actually over at the X Lab because I didn't know where to look because they're in a weird place, Dave. So there are two preference files that may be screwed up and you may want to whack them and see if things get better. One is com.apple.powermanagement.plist. And the other, which holds, uh, so those are the settings we talked about before. And mm -hmm. then the schedule settings are in a preference file called com.apple.autowake.plist. Here's the weird part, Dave. You know where these things are? I'm going to tell you where they are. They're in library preferences. And you're like, well, duh. Uh, no, one level deeper system configuration. They're same, in a folder called same system folder, configuration. Same folder we talked about uh, earlier that Andrew was having when his uh, waking Mac was uh, have slow to reconnect to the network. Wow. There are all sorts of problems. Or, or can be attributed to what's in that folder. Yeah, again, just to, I, I mentioned this when we did Andrew's thing, but I want to make it clear here. This is not in your home library folder. This is in the system library. So you go to the main hard disk and go to the library folder there. That's system-wide. It's not user-specific. Just keep you from going on a, a you know, wild goose chase. 
Pretty good. Pretty good. Fun stuff. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Why am I hearing these weird noises? I don't know. What's making no. that noise? I, I'm. You're, you're. You're getting no noises from me. <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully, I'm not hearing any weird noises, which means our esteemed listeners are not hearing any weird noises. That, that actually makes me happy. Hey, I have a. Oh. Um, I have a, mm-hmm. a, a a question to play here from uh, listener David, and and I don't necessarily know the answer, but um, hopefully somebody will have a workaround, an idea. Hey, John, Dave, this is David from Raleigh, North Carolina. I have a follow-up to your Mother's Day uh, episode where the person called in about iMovie and sharing their movies between iOS devices, et cetera. You recommended uh, uploading to YouTube, and I want to take it one step further and ask you, I've been looking to see if there's a way when I take a video with my iOS device, it can automatically upload it then to YouTube. Because uh, right now I have my photos being automatically uploaded to Flickr, so I got an automatic backup of that. I'd love to have an automatic backup of my movies as well. And I've tried a workflow app. I've looked at IFTT, and I can't find anywhere where I could automatically upload a movie to YouTube and just use the file name or or some acronym or or come up with a naming scheme to upload it. And I have all my movies backed up as well. So if you have an idea for how I could accomplish that, I'd love to hear it. This is where you cut me off. And off you are cut. I don't have uh, a way, certainly not from iOS, uh, and even from the Mac, I'm not, you know, YouTube uploads happen in, in a couple of places uh, on the on the Mac. They happen in the web browser or inside the photos app. Uh, right. Well, I, I know they happened in iPhoto. Can you can you do movie uploads in um, in the photos app, John? I think Oh, not that uh, you can do them in iMovie. That's right. Um, and on your iOS device, you can do uh, you can do them from iMovie. You can do them in a couple of places, but yeah, I don't know. The problem is the process of uploading to YouTube. Like you said, you know, there's some naming that happens. There's tagging that happens, and YouTube requires you to tag things. There's privacy settings and all of that. Obviously, all of that stuff could be scripted, but there's no. You know, iOS gets tough with scripting. Workflow is is certainly the best app at that. And if you haven't messed around with Workflow, folks, I mean, it's it's just killer. But um, but even with that, I'm not I'm not convinced that there would be a way. I'm even trying to think of of how an automator script on 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 the Mac would do it. Uh, it's going to be tough. You're going to have to do some UI scripting which is where the, the Mac kind of takes over the user interface and you tell it, click in this place and, and do these things, sort of walking it through um, the, the steps as though it were a user doing things. And that, that, gets, that gets tough. I don't know. What do, you, uh, what do you think, John? Any thoughts come to mind? No, huh? About the only... The, the only... Um... The only videos I regularly see are people posting them in my Instagram feed. So yeah, but Instagram, I mean, Instagram? You're, you're committing serious crimes every time you treat Instagram like anything other than just a place to share. Right. I mean, this guy wants to back up his videos and, and the reason right. you're, you're committing these crimes. And I say this uh, sort of in jest is Instagram is built to do this on mobile and it's built mm-hmm. to be very, very efficient. And to do that, they crop your pictures down all to what is it? 640 by 640, right? Um, mm-hmm. So you're losing all that data and videos, the same thing. 
you're losing a ton of data and a ton of detail in your in your movies. It it you know Instagram is great for what it is, but it's not a backup, folks. So and if you use Instagram to share to other services like to Facebook or Twitter, it's sharing those 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 stripped down pictures, which is why I've stopped sharing from one to the other. It's just it's better to just share directly so that you get full size images happening in Twitter and and Facebook too. So oh yeah. Well, when I share, I, I share to uh, Flickr as well. I share. Uh, well, yeah, but Flickr, sometimes. you share from Instagram to Flickr or directly to Flickr? Uh, it depends. Yeah, because if you share, again, Instagram to Flickr. No, uh, I, know, I know. You know what I mean? But Flickr has that awesome uh, backup service. You know, I mean, you just turn on the auto uploads in the background and you're good to go. It's pretty cool. And I thought that worked with movies. Maybe not. Honestly, I don't do a lot of videos, so I'm, I'm not very well qualified to uh, talk about what yep. one should do with their videos because I, I do pretty much. Hang on. Yeah. You, know you might be right, John. Does Flickr back up those videos? Let me look because I'm looking at my camera roll. I took some videos, uh, I think. Where did I take a video? I know I, I know I took some videos while we were away. I just wanted to see if they were they were in my role and it's probably going to be too difficult to find them because we did a lot. No, of things. I'm all right. So I'm looking at my camera roll here. Yep. Well, actually, no, I'm looking in the Flickr app. So if I go to the Flickr app and then I click in the center button, which typically for a lot of apps is the one that makes it do something. I see both a camera and I see a little video camera. So at least within the Flickr app, it looks like you can take a video and then duh, I would assume you can upload it. Yeah. I wonder if that happens in the, the auto upload thing, right? You know, in the, um, the auto uploader settings, let's see. Yeah. Videos. Yeah. So there you go. That, there, that there's your answer. Uh, with a thousand gigs of free storage, auto uploader is an easy way to privately store your photos and videos until you choose to share them. And you can then go in and share them. So it is going to back up your, your videos this way. It's not going to solve your problem, Dave, of wanting to auto share them to YouTube. Uh, but at least this way, you know that your videos are, are backed up. And, um, and in fact, yeah, you just go into the Flickr uh, settings on your iOS app. And go into auto upload er, which of course is missing the E between the D and the R because it's Flickr. So you go to auto uploader and you can turn on auto upload and then tell it whether you want to use cellular data or not. So there you go. Your auto photo backup service right there. Flickr for free. A terabyte of data. It's pretty good. Okay. Oh, where are we here, John? Uh, you know, we'll talk about this. This is actually kind of a fun one. Duffy, our good friend Duffy, uh, asked, I'd posted a picture to Twitter. You know, a lot of times, uh, if you follow uh, us on Twitter, John is John F. Braun. I'm Dave Hamilton. Uh, when we get new things that we're going to start testing and eventually wind up potentially talking about here, if it's any good or if it's horrible, uh, we'll talk about it here. If it's mediocre, we won't talk about it here uh, because that's not, we don't have time for that. But uh, if you follow us there, you kind of get a sneak peek sometimes of the things that have entered our world. And that happened uh, a couple of weeks ago. I uh, got an audio engine D one, which is their, their DAC, their uh, USB based uh, external sound enhancement device is, is the category I'm going to throw it into. And I said, I'm eager to check this out. Now it, it you know, I use the term DAC uh, it digital to analog converter is, is what a DAC is. 
but it, it, you know, a DAC is more than that because the DAC is just one part of it. But essentially what it does is it plugs into my computer via USB. It shows up as a USB output uh, audio device. And then into this, I can plug um, headphones uh, on the front. It's got a headphone jack on the back. It's got uh, RCA jacks to go to, to speakers or another amplifier or an amplifier, I should say. And then it's also got an optical output so that you can go to something else from there if you like. Now, you say, well, I can plug headphones into my computer. Why would I want to spend, you know, 100 and I think it's 179 bucks for a, um, uh, you know, for something that lets me do the same thing and plug headphones into my computer? Well, it's 169 bucks. My, my apologies. I, the reason is quality. And I honestly wasn't sure if I would notice a difference. Um, you, you know, I don't, I use, I actually use audio engine speakers. I use the A2s at my computer these days, uh, but they're small speakers. They sound great. Um, I have various different types of headphones that I can test with and, and they all sound fine, but you know, I'm not using anything massive at my desk. I'm not, I don't have thousands of dollars worth of, of audio equipment to listen to, to, to stuff at my computer. Uh, so or at least I don't typically, sometimes I get fun stuff to test, but in, in a general day to day, I don't, I use, you know, relatively modest stuff. And so I wasn't sure if I would notice the difference, but I did immediately, uh, b believe it or not. Uh, as long as you're listening to good quality music and, and I, and, and the term quality I'm using in terms of the. Uh, the, the, the quality of the track, not the songwriting or the performances uh, <laughs> that's subjective, but as long as you've got decent music, you know, and Apple's, you know, iTunes stuff is, is certainly decent enough. Uh, no question about it. You know, that the tracks you download from iTunes, those are, are really well done. And you'd probably have a hard time on most tracks telling the difference between those and their, you know, lossless counterparts. So um, it makes a huge difference. If you're, if you kind of have it on in the background and, and, and aren't really paying attention, you might not notice, but you even still might. So there's a couple of things um, that I've noticed it in either on headphones or, or, you know, if the office is otherwise quiet and I just have music going. Um, the first thing is how much clearer everything is, you know, that, that your computer has a DAC in it, a digital to analog converter. It also has a headphone amp in it. Uh, because you've got to be able to plug, you know, your headphones in and, and control the volume with your computer. Well, the, um, the, 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 there is, there is what's called the noise floor, John, in your computer. Um, you know, you, you've, your, uh, DAC, the, the, the chip that does the conversion from digital to analog, um, is powered by, you know, the things in the, in the computer. And, and so there's, there's additional noise kind of in the circuitry. And it's just, it's also not the best quality DAC in your computer either. And so moving to this D1 instantly, everything, like when there was nothing else playing, the amount of noise coming out of the speakers is much, much less than it is when you've got your Mac. And it, it is noticeable when music's playing because, you know, the whole delta between quiet and loud is, is that dynamic range is, is what really starts to make the music listening experience a pleasant one. So that was that was the first thing I noticed was just that how much clearer it was. And when you crank things up, um, you know, the DAC and the Mac isn't horrible, but it, it, it can it can distort on certain things. That was not happening at all with um, with the, the D1. The biggest thing I noticed, though, 
was the stereo separation playing the same track. And I didn't even know to look for this. It just hit me. Everything I was playing, the stereo separation, the field felt so wide. It just felt it, and which then creates this, 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 you know, soundstage that, that you can sort of envision where all the instruments are. That was the biggest thing I noticed. And I actually wrote the guys at audio engine. I, I sort of just stream of conscious, just dumped out this whole thing actually to our friend Duffy. And then I sent that off to, to the guys at audio engine. I said, okay, so here's my thoughts on this thing. Is it all in my head? Am I making this up? You know, cause it's hard. You've got confirmation bias, right? Which is the belief of if something's going to be better, you'll actually hear it as better, even though you're not. Um, and they wrote me back. And of course, the first thing they said was, yeah, well, it is all in your head because that's where music is heard. Um, but it, it's true. And it's, it's um, yes, it has a very high quality um, DAC chip in it. But in addition to that, Everything, even though it's powered by USB, everything, every element in there has discrete power supply. So everything is separated from everything else. And the headphone amp that they put in there, which is it really, I should say the preamp, uh, because it's used for if you plug headphones in or if you just plug speakers directly in, um, is super high quality. And that they believe is why I'm hearing that wider stereo field. And, um, but it doesn't hurt that you've got this good quality DAC chip that kind of brings the noise floor down. So you can start to hear those subtle differences, even though you're not necessarily perceiving them exactly for what they are, you know, widening up that dynamic range without all the noise certainly opens up that stereo field as well. So the question is, is it worth it to go and spend 169 bucks if you're not a crazy, you know, audiophile? I think so. Um, I never would have thought that I would notice or care about the difference of this thing. Uh, but yeah, Duffy, I do. It, it, it really, it really changed things. I, I'm, I'm surprised at how easy it is to notice the difference. I really thought it would be a lot more subtle and it is, but it's the culmination of all of these very subtle things that just makes for an instant, uh, instantly noticeable, noticeable difference. So there you go. Audio engine D one. I like it. It's good. That's my answer. What else you got, John? Where do you want to go with this? Uh, how about David? All right. Take us to David. All right. We're going to make life simple for David here. <laughs> That's what we I do. Think Dave, That's our well, goal. I think David, David overthought this one here. But uh, so David writes in and says, I need to be able to log into a government site to get to a web exchange server. And the only successful way of doing this is with a Dell running Windows and a browser running a Citrix Zen app plugin, which allows a virtual session to run on the browser. There has to be a better way. I have a mid-2013 MacBook Air with a 512 gig SSD and 8 megabytes of memory. The IT support group is sympathetic to what I want to do, but they do not have any Mac users. Wow. Uh, that said, if I can dumb, dumb my Mac down so it acts like a government issued Dell, it should work. I would like to do this eventually with a Citrix plugin on my Mac running Firefox, but for now, I have no way to even figure out why that does not work. Parentheses, it doesn't work. <laughs> Here's what I would like to do. I have a full install.iso file, uh, that being a, a disk image file, uh, of a Windows 7 uh, service pack one with a serial number, uh, also known as a CD key. I really do not want to go through creating a Windows partition and using Bootcamp or installing Parallels unless I know this is going to work. I have a 70% full SSD and everything is working well, so I do not want to experiment with it. Here are the workarounds I have come up with. 
Number one, create a Mac bootable Windows DVD from the ISO that has Firefox installed and had the Citrix plugin. Two, create a Mac bootable Windows 7 USB stick from the ISO that has Firefox installed and has the Citrix plugin. Um, here's another one. Create a Windows partition on my existing SSD and install Windows 7 in the minimum space possible and use Boot Camp. And then four, install Parallels latest version. I stop upgrading around version 8. And uh, I think we'll, we'll cut it off there. I wouldn't do any of those, Dave. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to tell because I've had to do this in the past. Now, in theory, a lot of these solutions that involve plugins and, and I did this once, I think it was Juniper, uh, which would allow me to VPN to a corporate network. And it worked. Uh, it worked on the Mac. It worked on the PC. It worked on any modern browser because it was actually, I think, a Java browser plugin. So uh, and, and that was great. And in this case, it should work. Citrix. If they got their act together, should provide a plugin that works with modern browsers. Maybe not Safari, um, but he's saying it's not working. So you could either bang your head against the wall and try to figure that out, or what I've done in the past, Dave, when I've had to run Windows in a corporate space. Uh, so that's why I said I think he was he was uh, overcomplicating this. Here's what I do: since he has a Windows Seven installation, use VirtualBox. VirtualBox is a splendid virtual machine. The price is right. It's free. It's currently, uh, I believe, owned by uh, uh, Oracle. And and it works. Uh, uh, when I've used it, it works great. Uh, it, it'll see that ISO, um, you know, the Windows 7 ISO file. You can install Windows. Uh, I would define a virtual hard drive of maybe 10 or 20 gigs uh, and maybe allocate, you know, maybe four gigs of RAM so you get some decent performance out of the Windows 7 side. But Dave, that's what I do, man. Uh, yeah. I, I currently run Parallels just because they're swell folks and uh, both me and you, I think they, they constantly like to give us, uh, you know, media copies, uh, media keys for it. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I run all three, right? I've got VirtualBox, I've got Parallels, I've got VMware, and I realize that's not all three, but that's the three that I run. And there are things that VirtualBox fails, uh, you know, that it, I don't want to say fails. It just doesn't cover. If you start getting into really esoteric performance stuff or anything that you want to do graphic stuff with, VirtualBox is not what you want to start working with. But yeah. for quick and or dirty. I've had hardware. Yeah, I've yeah. had exotic hardware. Like I had VirtualBox not enjoy certain offbeat USB hardware. It just totally. couldn't couldn't talk to it. Totally. Uh, but in this case, because it sounds like what you're doing is network based virtualization uh, or network uh, network based. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, you're you're trying to use Citrix to log in to a system, and it only works under Windows. Yeah, that's really what I do, Dave. Uh, virtual uh, yeah. again, VirtualBox is good for basic needs, uh, and I don't think uh, you're going to get a performance bottleneck in this case. No. In that you're running a browser, and uh, you know you're you're going to be maybe taxing the graphics, but you know it should should be good enough. I will uh, I, I will say this actually. I'll I'll repeat what someone else says. Kiwi Graham in the in the chat room at mattkeekab.com slash stream says. For the price, I think Parallels or VM will, will avoid hassles that VirtualBox can encounter. And, and that's certainly true. They, they have, you know, the onboarding, the setup process, all of that is made much, much simpler um, with with Parallels. There's less it, it's less there's less of a mandatory geeky element with you know, with the commercial packages, the Parallels and VMware with VirtualBox. It's still kind of geeky. You can get geeky with all of them, but you mm -hmm. don't have to. 
again, you, you know, that personal preference at that point. So, yeah. No, I'm with you. They, they, uh, yes. Uh, you may have to refer to the virtual box manual yeah. if, uh, if things don't go right. But last I used it, it, it was pretty straightforward. It's like, you know, find me the ISO. How big do you want the drive? How much Ram? And, uh, here we go. Yeah. And yeah, there's less point on its windows. That's right. Yep. Yes. Yep. But nothing, but nothing wrong with it. It's again, the price, yeah. is, the price is right. Yep. And honestly, I, I have never Dave and I'm, I'm struggling with the reason why anyone would want to use boot camp or go through the partitioning headache. And every now and then we'll get a question from somebody saying, Oh man, how do I repartition and run boot camp and stuff? And I've never used it, Dave. And I haven't yet found a good reason to, and I don't think I ever will. Yeah. I mean, I guess there, there's a couple of things, right? Number one, if you want to truly eke out as much windows performance as possible and, and use all your system resources, all your Ram and everything, um, then running bootcamp is an easy answer because you're, you don't also have, you know, OS 10 running, uh, around it. Right. So, so you definitely get more of your CPU, more of your, your, all of your Ram, all of your CPU. Hmm. Right. Okay. So, so there's that. And then number two, is you also have direct access to hardware with bootcamp. Whereas, you know, a virtualized um, setup is that is just that you, you are talking to virtual hardware devices or windows would be in, in this case would be talking to virtual hardware devices that are then translated through by the OS. And, and, and this is again, where, you know, VMware and, 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 and parallels, they kind of leapfrog each other and go back and forth, but this is where they really shine because they do allow some really kind of, you know, almost direct access to the graphics chips. In fact, I think in some cases it is direct access. And so you, you get a lot of that performance stuff, um, even though you're, you're still able to run in a virtualized environment, but, um, but it, you know, to your point, you had some weird hardware that wouldn't work with VirtualBox. If you were running Bootcamp, you wouldn't have any trouble with that at all. You just run it because it's it's just a Windows machine at that point, right? You know, you're not dealing with this abstraction layer between the OS and the hardware. Yeah. So, so that that's where now. But you may be right. You may never actually have a reason to do that. But to me, that those would be the reasons. You know, resources. Hardware access. That's my thought. Mm -hmm. Yep. I've never had reason to run it. I've run it just for the sake of, of running it. Um, but I've never, it's, it's like you, I'm, I'm, I'm totally fine in a virtualized environment and it makes life easier too. Yeah. No, oh, I just, uh, the other day, uh, have you, have you looked at windows 10 technical preview? I have not. Should I? I should. Might yeah, as well see what we're up against. Yeah, I will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, uh, the you know the front end is uh, well. The, the, uh, Microsoft finally got up to ten. Right. Right. <laughs> They're now on par with Apple. That's right. <laughs> hey, feedback at macgeekab.com is the address to which you're going to send all of your correspondence that you want us to see and digest and reply to. Yep, except for your Windows questions. You definitely don't want to send those to feedback at MacGeekGap.com. You could send them to feedback at MacGeekGap.com, though. We might get them. I mean, we'll definitely get them. We might even answer them. Uh, John now is a, <laughs> is a self-professed expert at Windows 10 developer preview, so, you know. There you well, no, 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 no. I just said I installed <laughs> I <know>. it. I know. <laughs> hey, if you are a premium member, then you do get a different email address. That is premium at MacGeekGap.com. 
premiummembership.com. If you're not a premium member and you have the means and would like to support us directly, you certainly, we would certainly welcome you. Uh, and we would love to have you. In fact, check it out. Uh, is a great place to start. You can, you can find out all about premium there. We would very much appreciate uh, it. If you are willing and able, and if you're not, that's okay too. Uh, by the math, I think it's a uh, 10 to 15% of you are, are premium subscribers, which is awesome. In fact, that's a humbling number. I never expected it to be double digits at all. But um, but yeah, yeah, come and uh, come and join us there. And if you can't, that's okay. Uh, you know, the the rest of you are are uh, are equally as important. You're sending in great questions. You're listening. Uh, you're supporting our sponsors. It's all fantastic. So everyone is welcome. The door is always wide open. No matter who you are. No matter how how you can uh, help us here. It's not uh, we help you and. And we take it from there. So 206-666-GEEK is the number that anyone can call and leave us a voicemail. We'll play them on the show and answer the questions. John Geek is 4335. Facebook.com. Well, actually, the easiest way is to go to MacKeekyab.com slash Facebook. That'll direct you in through Facebook's crazy URL structure and get you to the awesome Mac Geek Gab community that we have there. It really is fantastic. It's been a lot of fun. Some great conversation happening there. Really appreciate everybody that's involved. So, uh, so check it out. MacGeekGab.com slash Facebook is the way to get there. So in addition to thanking all of you for listening, uh, in addition to a little bit of extra special thanks for our premium subscribers, in addition to my personal thanks to you, John, for uh, doing this show every week and having fun together. I want to thank Michael Johnston. Although last week, Michael was in the midst of finals. Uh, most weeks, Michael has the opportunity to, and does add all the chapters to this show for the, uh, the enhanced feed, which is the one most of you listen to. I'm actually still curious, you know, the Apple's support for creating the chapters has waned. And so I'm, I'm really curious as to your thoughts on uh, on how useful you find the chapters to be. Let us know it, be, via any of the aforementioned channels. Please do let us know your thoughts about them and uh, and whether you think we should keep them or not. I I think we should, but uh, but again, Apple is is making this more and more difficult. And I'm also curious if any of you have noticed the uh, little uh, chapters that we have added to the MP3 feed. Not every MP3 player app will show them in fact itunes and apple's podcast app will not show mp3 chapters i don't know why most third-party podcast app that support chapters will so uh so let us know what you think of those I'm, i'd be curious to uh to hear if you've noticed so thank you michael michael produces the ios show uh podcast which is awesome you gotta listen to it i also want to thank the folks at cashfly c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com they provide us all the bandwidth to, uh, to get the show from us to you. The podcast marketplace includes, as we mentioned, of course, Squarespace with coupon code MGG. DigiDNA's iMazing at iMazing.com with coupon code MGG. Smile at SmileSoftware.com slash geek. That'll always show you the current promotion for you. Linda at lynda.com slash mgg gets you 10 days free of their awesome training videos. We'll talk more about that in the next episode.
Happy uh, Victoria Day today, the 24th of May, to those of you, uh, our neighbors to the north in Canada. Uh, enjoy your Memorial Day weekend, uh, everybody here in the U.S., and, uh, and to everyone that makes Memorial Day a possibility, all of you who have served, thank you for your service from, uh, from us here. John, sending them off for a week and a holiday, perhaps, in the middle there. Do you have any advice to share? Well, I think I do, Dave, because I was reading, um, uh, getting some notifications in my various communications uh, about uh, uh, that our law enforcement is going to be out there over the weekend to keep you safe and make sure you're not driving like a maniac or an idiot. And if you want me to translate that, that means what you should not. What you should do is don't get caught. Made up.